गुरवे गौरचंद्राय राधिकाय ठडाल कृष्णाय कृष्ण भक्ताय थाय नमो नम सो वेलकम टू ऑल ऑफ यू गुड आफ्टरनून प्रणाम थैंक यू सो मच फॉर बीइंग प्रेजेंट टुडे हियर विद ऑल ऑफ अस and for investing your valuable time in gathering all together here as i like to say in the bhagavad gita sri krishna mentions that his time personified so in one sense for us god and time are non different so a day like today you are giving me your time and since time is not different from krishna you are giving me krishna by giving me your time so i'm being gifted with the presence of god in the form of time by having you here and being generously extending your attention and your trust because in one sense you are being here open to listen i hope so <laughs> because of course if we come to a place like this completely close to any possibility of hearing something new or different it may be a little well sad <laughs> but I, i i trust that's not the case and that's why we are here today being willing to listen and listen from each other not only listen to me but me listening to you as well and listening to each other and also will being willing to be transformed uh with each other so that's basically what we were doing before starting when we were singing together in one sense we could say we were singing together but also we could say we were transforming each other or transforming together by this by the strength of our company and association when you are close to someone and in a situation where everyone is trying to open their hearts and remain uh vulnerable if you will honestly willing to be affected by grace then big transformations can occur and, and and we may be affecting each other and that's beautiful but we have to be of course very careful how we choose to affect and be affected by each other but in potential there is a great 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 prospect for like miraculous transformation in this type of gatherings so what we were doing was that we call it sankirtan sankirtan again can be translated as singing together uh, but also beyond that speaks about the quality of participation it's not just getting a bunch of people opening the mouth at the same time so to say <laughs> or taking turns to open their mouth and sing and response but it's about trying to be sing in unison with our hearts trying to be willing to enter into a common i will call it common fire of introspection oh, like the gathering like today at least for me it's like all of us taking our hands and saying okay let's jump together into a fire of introspection let's try to reflect together about some deep things deep truths some deep way deeper way in which we can uh, approach reality Let's not be so sure that we already 
got it all about it, basically, for any one of us. I include myself in the list. Let's not be very sure that we already know everything about everything. Uh, and let's be open to learning a new way, a new lesson today by entering into this fire. We call the practice fire of Sankirtan. A fire means something that will burn, but also will give heat, will be give light, so will enlighten us, will warm us. But some things maybe need to be burned as well. <laughs> That's in, in, in summary what spiritual practice is about. Some things need to be burned, some things need to be enlightened, some warmth will be provided. So all these different ingredients come from the, from the fiery element. And interestingly enough, the word fire, as I mentioned also in my recent book, the first word, the first word that was heard in the whole cosmic creation according to our tradition is the word fire. Mm -hmm. Tapa, tapa. Tapa can mean among many things, fire. So that's interesting. The first word that puts in context the whole cosmic unfolding is fire. Mm -hmm. But not limited to the, again, to the mere element fire, but to the implications of fire, which as we were mentioning is introspection. For example, this person who heard this first word, tapa, fire, for the first time called Brahma, what did he do when he heard fire? He didn't have a lighter and he okay, fire, or took two woods, okay, fire. But he closed his eyes and jumped into his inner self, so to say. That was how he understood fire, which is interesting. Because if we hear fire now, we may think some house is burning or something. <laughs> mm -hmm. But Brahma heard fire, 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 and and some something was already burning, but inside his heart. Now, there was some longing for searching the truth, searching the meaning of life. He was burning with that, interestingly, and the word fire confirmed his inner fire. He closed his eyes and tried to see with eyes closed which is a very interesting idea because generally we think I have to open my eyes to see. But sometimes we have to close our eyes so we can see what lies beyond mere physical vision. So Brahma closed his eyes and saw. He had a very beautiful, he had a very beautiful darshan or vision, revelation of the Supreme. All that following this idea of fire, so I'm saying all this because, again, trying to introduce what we are supposed to do a day like today. So today is all about fire. We won't set on fire this place. It's just we are just inaugurating a few days ago. So relax, Patrak. House is still in place. <laughs> but again, fire means also introspection, reflection, trying to, to look into unusual places, trying to pay attention into certain directions that sometimes due to life dynamics, we don't have the time or the energy or the willingness, whatever the case, to look in that direction and try to look with some attention and go deeper into that and discover probably what we are looking for at every moment. Mm -hmm. so, so that was what we were doing a few minutes ago, all together singing. And, ide and ideally, we continue doing the same thing together now by 
sharing with each other and singing our hearts, so to say. Sankirtan Yajna, which basically means, again, a circle of introspection. Again, it's not just let's sing together. There is music to it, which helps us to express our inner hearts, but it's let's get together to enter into a fire of introspection, a collective fire of introspection. And let's try to make a commitment of trying to be willing to open our hearts more and more and discover what's what's our potential. Today, I like to concentrate in, in that particular direction, although we will have time for questions and answers at the end if you have some other points related to my presentation today. But in connection to the book I just published called Radical Personalism, I have been kind of traveling a little bit around the world, more than a little bit. <laughs> and here, New Zealand is basically, in one sense, the final uh, point of the whole tour that started like who knows how long ago like a year ago a little less than a year ago but half a year ago june june something like that so new zealand is last spot on the bumandal parikram or the circumambulation of plan on planet earth so i like to share a few words on, on radical personalism which is a book that came by its own will, so to say. <laughs> it was not in my in my agenda, in my diary to, to write that book, but it was in God's plan, Krishna's plans to send to my life circumstances that made me write that book. Basically, that's how it works, at least for me. I, I cannot I cannot write a book that has nothing to do with what I'm living in my own life on a daily basis. And so so some some few things happened and those few things gave among other things as a result a book which that's pretty interesting <laughs> mm -hmm. and in that book i basically i'm trying to rethink and re recalibre as this gps system say recalibrate when you are going someplace it's no longer operative you have to see another way of continuing your journey because in this direction it proved to be a dead end. So go back, find a new way to reach the same goal, but from another direction. So basically the book is an exploration of that. How, how to begin with, and it starts on a personal level, but it extends to every other person that may find inspire, inspiration in that. How to continue practicing spiritual life from a place that is real, alive, relevant, relatable, uh, dynamic, non, how to say, non-mechanical, non-formulaic, non-predictable. <laughs> how to embrace the very essence of any spiritual tradition. I'm talking about my tradition, but any spiritual tradition's spirit is, as we were talking these days, ever-evolving. It's always rediscovering itself it's always showing new faces life is about change life is about evolution but many times paradoxically many of us spiritual folks folks we engage in spiritual practices and end up being the exact opposite of this spirit of constant change and discovery and evolution and we become attached to certain formulas and to be in part of a particular tribe or institution 
and having certain labels that confirm that we are legal, <laughs> that we belong to the saved elite no? or something like that. And we, after that, oof, our search stops no? and we become conformist, basic, basically. We become stagnated in our so-called spiritual life. But that's not spiritual life. No? Spiritual life has to be always in the move always growing, always expanding. And sometimes for that to happen, catastrophe may need to knock on your door. <laughs> no, when, when we are becoming too cozy, like too comfortable and everything becomes too predictable, too control, Krishna will come and will say, hmm. <laughs> for those who didn't, did not see in the, in the screen, I did this mudra. We are doing live streaming. <laughs> So, and that's part of his grace. That's part of his mercy. He says over, over that over and over again in the scriptures. And so many other things. No? If I want to show my grace to someone, I will take away a few things from their life to give myself more fully to that person. <laughs> no? So ultimately, he's not taking away anything of what is real value in one sense. He will take away things that will allow ourselves to receive his presence even more deeply. So as hard as sometimes these tests may be, when we, when we are going through them, when we are in the eye of the storm, <laughs> over and over again, we are advised by the sages and wise teachers of all mystical tradition, like don't lose sight of having trust, deep trust and faith in, in God's dancing in your life no how he's choosing which is the dance he's inviting you to dance no like for example i come from argentina i was born in argentina i don't come from argentina now i'm coming from india but i was born in argentina and argentina argentina is famous famous for a few things infamous for many as well but famous for <laughs> for tango for example you may have heard about that well, this is a type of dance not my favorite to be honest but <laughs> I'm using it for a particular point here. No? So in tango, one of the two parts have to just merely be led by the main leader of the dance. Mm -hmm. So the lady has to allow herself to be led by the man. It's a little bit chauvinistic, but <laughs> try, try to get my example here. No? We're, one part is to just be led by the, the one who knows better how to dance, something like that. So many times Krishna is known as the dancer. One know, one name for Krishna is Natavar. Navakishor Natavar. Natavar means the best dancer, the king of dance. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine, no? he will invite us to dance quite often. And sometimes he's such a good dancer that we may not be able to catch up what's the dance about. He's always... Uh, inaugurating new styles of dance. As the scripture is saying, Krishna is playing flute. You have, you may have heard some, you can see some picture there. Krishna yeah. is having his flute there, but he never plays the same song again. He's always creating new songs, even new ragas. For those who have studied Indian music, there are certain fixed like scales in Indian musical system. But Krishna is breaking all those rules and always creating new patterns, melodic patterns at every moment. He cannot but not repeat himself. <laughs> while playing flute, while dancing. He's dancing, you can see. 
In every picture, Krishna is basically dancing. Mm -hmm. no? There's always some movement. That's yeah. my point. You will never see Krishna like, like this, not like static, <laughs> not movement, like, <laughs> like tense or non -like. He's always flowing. He's always moving. He's always improvising, so to say. So when he dances, that's the same. He's inviting us to dance, but the dance will never be the same. Sometimes his dancing can be unexpected. We, we may not know what to do, how to follow. But again, we have to just take his hands and allow himself to lead us in this dance and trust. Trust the, the boss. Trust the one who knows how to do it. <laughs> you know? He knows what, we, what he's doing, and we have to do our own part. Trusting he's doing his part. So Krishna is doing his part, and we as souls have to do our part, which is, our part is to trust that God is doing his part. Hmm. Sounds simple, but that's <laughs> not so simple. <laughs> no. hmm. So he's doing his part, and we have to trust he's doing his part. Even when he's inviting us to dance a certain dance, a certain movement that externally seems like, again, apocalypsis or something like that. No? What's hmm. happening here? No? My whole life is like <laughs> in the opposite direction, whatever. So, so that's invitation, and the invitation has to do a lot uh, with the idea of potential, as I mentioned. I would like to talk about that. This is one of the main topics in this book, and it's so such a nice topic that now I'm thinking about writing say another book on that topic more specifically, which is this notion of there's one line that I included in radical personalism, which basically goes like like this. It says. We have a commitment to our potential. So it's kind of a sutra, you know, like, a, like an aphorism. We have a commitment to our potential. So potential means all that we can be. Not what we are now, but all that we can be. So we have a commitment ourselves with all that we can become. In other words... In our tradition, we use the term tatashta to indicate this. Tatashta means who we are, and who we are as souls, as spirit, as consciousness, we are described as units of potential. That's an interesting way of putting it. We are not finished products in one sense. In one sense, we are finished products, but the finished product includes potential. So in that sense, there's so much more that can happen inside the finished product. Mm -hmm. And this applies to us and this applies to, to everything. Everything is and can become something else. Einstein will say that. It's interesting. He said, every time we analyze anything, of course, he's talking from the realm of science, but it's totally applicable. Every time we analyze everything, we should analyze it considering its potential. Not only what that is, but what that can be. That's part of the identity of whatever we are analyzing. So if I analyzing you, I should see you not only in terms of who you are, but in terms of all that you can be. Hmm. You follow? It's, it's a very, it's a different way of, it's a different lens through which we can choose to see everything. Hmm? Mm -hmm. It's a more, expansive 
lens is a more generous lens because as, as we often say, if I only see you according to who you are now, instead of all that you can be in the most beautiful possible way, no, no, you are just what you are now, that's not so generous because maybe now you are a mess, <laughs> right? We are a mess. I, I include myself with you in the group. We're not alone in the messiness. So if we judge one another merely according to our present condition, which we, we may which may be far from perfect, that the result of that equation, if we relate to one another just on the basis of who we are, that won't be very hopeful, hopeful for the universe, so to say. We won't have very smooth and loving interactions because we won't be have we won't be seeing each other as potentially improving, changing, and growing from where we are now, especially when we confront each other's shortcomings. When we confront each other's shortcomings and limitations, generally, because of this lack of vision of potential, we will just concentrate on, oh, you did this. No? At present, you are this. You told me that. I, lose, I completely lose sight of the potential of that person. I just over-identify the person from what you are doing to me right now in this precise moment. That's what you are, period. No, that's not very generous. That's not giving hope. If you tell me all that to me, basically you are over-identifying me with that and I don't have chance to change, grow, become something else, all that I can be. So hopefully you can start to see how how important it is to develop a vision where we relate to one another and we see everything in terms of potential. Of course, when I say potential also, also we have a potential to do things even worse. That's also a potential we have. So that's the, the tricky part of the equation. <laughs> because I can judge you in terms of potential, but I can judge you in terms of your worst possible potential. Also, that's not the, that's not my message today. Just in case I'm clarifying disclaimer, no. to see each other in terms of potential, it doesn't mean like, okay, in potential you can be a serial killer. So I will treat you as such from now on. No, that that doesn't work because <laughs> in potential, in, in that in that case, all of us can be a serial killer, <laughs> which is humbling, but it's important to bear that in mind. I mentioned that in my book recently. There was some uh, like lecture that was given and the lecturer was asking was speaking about nazi germany and the horrors of the holocaust and so on so everyone was kind of, of course agreeing with that and at one point the, the speaker kind of gave shock treatment to the audience to say well but probably if, if all of us will have been at that time in nazi germany probably most of us will have been nazis and everyone was like no, 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 no. I don't know. I will have never been that. Never. No. <laughs> Here started to explain how actually most probably you have joined the, the masses, basically. Just go with the current and be affected by an environment because we are so susceptible to the influence of the environment. Not because we are ontologically evil, but just because we are very easily influenced. No? So my point is that should humble our brightest potential. We have a brightest potential, but we have a very dark potential if we choose to go in that direction, which is not the idea. 
but knowing that that's possible should keep us how to say more modest no humble and not so much like i only have bright potential whatever i do will take me in that not necessarily we have to exercise discernment and care and humility and be in proper environment so our brightest potential can come of course that's the idea one one of my teachers Srila Bhaktivedanta Goswami Maharaj he will beautifully describe the figure of the guru or the spiritual preceptor as our own potential appearing in front of us that's a very nice way to put it no? who is who is a sage or who is a saintly person is your own brightest potential appearing in front of you personified embodied all that you can be coming to visit you in a particular form <laughs> it's beautiful and it's challenging because imagine if you meet someone who embodies all that you can be which means all that you have not become yet <laughs> so it's a constant reminder of all that you can be but probably all that you have not become yet so we have also to know how to deal with that in a sustainable way and not go into a neurosis that I have not become that yet. I have not become that yet. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's a gradual process of attaining our potential. And the potential is unlimited. Mm -hmm. The potential of the soul in connection to God has no limits. So in one sense, we can never say, I have attained my fullest potential. That's interesting also. There's no end to how much we can explore the potentiality of of, of consciousness in connection with the divine because the divine has the same nature god is ever evolving as i was saying krishna is always moving dancing celebrating existence playing flutes celebrating he has nothing he has no other business for us god is just celebrating just <laughs> he's so fulfilled he has nothing else to celebrate existence. We call that Leela. And he's inviting us to be part of that, mm -hmm. to dance with him, to celebrate with him, and to discover ever new potential at every moment. Mm -hmm. So going back to the main line of today's lecture, we have a commitment to our potential. Mm -hmm. So there is something we are, and what we are includes what we can be. You cannot speak about who you are, separate from what you can be so that's an interesting that's an interesting way we cannot think about us without thinking about our potential you cannot separate those two and that's why krishna so generously is looking at each of us in terms of our potential and god is not judging us for who we are which is like thank you krishna He's not judging you for who you were in the past, because sometimes we, we, we find that. No? You did that 20 years ago. I know who you are. Mm -hmm. no, that's it. I have no hope of changing, no future, future redemption. You are reduced to what you did two decades ago. That's not generous. So Krishna is not judging us for what we did in the past. Again, great relief. <laughs> Krishna is not judging us for who we are in the present. Great relief, double relief. He's seeing us for all that we can be in the future. That's a glance of love. No, that's a glance of a generous person seeing us in terms of our brightest potential. 
That's it. And trying to help us if we are not going in that direction. And as, as we are being looked by that glance so generously, of course, we are expected to extend that same glance to others. So instead of treating each other in terms of what we did three decades ago, or what we are doing at present, we should relate to each other in terms of our potential. In terms of our darkest potential, protecting each other not to go there. <laughs> and in terms of our brightest potential, encouraging each other to go there. So basically my book, Radical Personalism, I, I, I try to explore that venue. Uh, like, okay, we are part of an, I mean, we are, we have unlimited potential. God has unlimited potential. Everything has unlimited potential. How, how to live our lives considering that? If everything, if everything is always growing, evolving, how to be part of that? How to connect with that current of life? Because spirit, spiritual life ultimately is about change. Which I know it's it may not be the most popular word, but it, that's all what spiritual life is about. Change, constant change, constant movement, constant expansion. So, so for us to practice spiritual life, in one sense, it's not so much about changing, but it's more about becoming aware how everything is changing. So everything is already changing. You don't need to. Okay, let's make everything change. Everything is already changing. Yeah. The thing is, okay, thank you for the confirmation. So the idea is we have to accept that. Because sometimes we may not be, how to say, we may not be willing to accept how reality chooses to be. And that's when we start to move like in the opposite direction of reality. And that's why when we experience suffering, pain, anxiety, stress, trouble, uh, when we are trying to live life in an impossible way, so to say. Life is to be lived in a certain way, which is how life in itself is. But if you choose according your free will, no, no, I will live life in the exact opposite way of how life actually is. Okay, we call that Maya. So Maya means the department in which you choose to try to live life in an impossible way. <laughs> it's not possible, but try if you want. Okay, you can try. <laughs> so you enter in that department where things cannot be. Mm -hmm. Maya basically means that. Maya means that which is not, but seems to be. Seems to be real, but it's not. So it seems to be possible, but it's not possible to live life in certain ways. So... As I say, what's life about? What's reality about? Again, it's all about ever-evolving uh, love, if you want to put it in a few words. And hopefully, I'm not sounding too, too, too romantic or too like new agey. But it's like ultimately that's what reality is about. Love is ever expanding. God's heart is ever expanding, ever ever growing, reaching newer and newer limits and heights. <laughs> And everything that emanates from that, including us, including this world, is also 
connected to that. But we choose to become aware of that or not, or trying to live as if that does not exist. And again, you can make, we have made our, I, I made my attempt of trying to live as if that's not actually true. Uh, and it didn't work. <laughs> it seemed it was going to work, it didn't work. It seemed it was going to work, it didn't work, and so on and so forth. So basically, spiritual life means to align with the structure of reality. Reality has a certain structure, works in a certain way, and invites us to participate in a certain way because we are part of that reality. We are not the center of reality, but we are part of that reality. We are related to that center. So we cannot, we may choose to deny our connection with the center, but still the connection is there. So it's, it's up to us to decide to accept that and act accordingly or not. So in my book, Radical Personalism, I, I'm trying to talk about that basically, you know, how we can relate to reality, relate to God, relate to everything, because everything is relational and relatable. Everything is interconnected. <laughs> we have the term for that called Sambandha. Sambandha means some everything Bandha is connected. Everything is connected. Of course, we, we are not seeing like a, a rope around our wrist connecting, it, but everything is connected because everything shares a common center and that common center is common to everything else. So everything else and everyone else has something in common around, I mean, we are constellating around the common center and the common center for us is made of love, beauty and harmony and truth which all of them are constantly expanding. And our DNA, if we want to put it like that, is to have a connection with that. We cannot, we are not isolated units, so to say. It's not like Krishna is here, you are over there, I'm over here, and we are completely alien to one another. I mean, we may feel that, and that's the symptom that we are trying to live life impossibly, no? in an impossible way. <laughs> but when we try to live life <clears throat> For us, that's what bhakti means. Bhakti means uh, the yoga of the heart, or I will say the heart of yoga. <laughs> so bhakti means to acknowledge reality's main, uh, how to say, dominating force is love and affection. And, and let's discover how that's the case. And of course, let's represent that accordingly in our daily behavior. That's where, where we have Sambanda. And we have something called Abhideya. Sambanda again means to be informed that everything is connected and related. And Abhideya means the natural result of knowing that. Now, if I get to know that everything is interconnected with a common center made of love, Abhideya means how I'm supposed to express that in practice. Now, how will I conduct myself in my life knowing Actually, technically speaking, all of us are part of the same family. That's what the Sanskrit quote says, Vasudhaiva Kutumbakam. Vasudhaiva Kutumbakam basically means there is only one family. If you start to think in terms of two families, you, you already are being sectarian. No. <laughs> you start to contribute to war in this world by creating division and conflict two families 
Of course, in practical terms, I know each of us had different surname. We belong to different families, but those are all different branches and ramifications that all of them have a common trunk, so to say. Krishna says in the Gita, Ham Pradapita. I'm the seed giving father. And everything else is everything, everything and everyone else are my children, so to say. So so radical personalism for me has this idea. It's, it's a way of radical personalism in itself. The term has to do with personalism. It's we worship God as a person. And not only we worship God as a person, but we uh, we like to see the principle of personality, personhood everywhere. In our tradition, everything is personified. Everything is individual. Everything invites for relation, relationship. You can only relate to something that is has some type of individual existence. So in our philosophy, everything, everything ultimately has a personalized conception, invites us to a form of relationship. And radical means something that goes to the root of things. Comes from the Latin radix, which means root. Generally, you don't see the roots of a tree, but in one sense, it's the main thing. It's generally it's bigger than the tree many times, and it's sustaining everything and it's nourishing. So many things happen in the root. And going to the root means also going beyond the surface of things. If this is the surface, you want to go to the root, you have to dive deeply. So radical personalism for me is, and for many others, what does mean? What does it mean to be a person, and that everything is a person in one sense, to the very root of, of things, in in the deepest place? What does it mean that we are a person? It's not that just I exist. Oh, I'm a person. But what you are doing with your personhood? Again, we are talking about potential. So what's our potential as individuals? How we uh, are we taking advantage of our fullest potential or we have kind of, how to say, conform to, oh, I can survive, like mere survival mode, which that's that's not fully satisfying to the heart. No? All, the, all the great mystics of different traditions are always lovingly poking us, like, don't be satisfied with mere survival mode. No? Life is not just to survive. No. Life is not just to survive. Like, like I quote from the Tao also in my book, says, to be alive is good. To be more alive is better. To be always alive is the best. The best is the maximum. So we are alive, but how much alive we are. Being alive doesn't mean like some air is coming from my nostrils only. What I'm doing with that air <laughs> in which what I'm doing with my life life without air, pram in Sanskrit pram means air it means life without air there's no life so what I'm doing with my air and life that's why one name for the divine in our school is or some of those Pranishwar or Prananath he's the lord of my pran, the lord of my my breathing or my, how do you say in English Saigin like when you say like, Saigen, oh. when you fall in love, it's like, oh. so Krishna is not only the law of our air, like just mere bit. This is for the law of my air. 
that is like, wow, the Lord of my psyching. Because just merely breathing, merely surviving, is not enough. And I'm not saying that. Each of us is saying that. It's not enough for us. I know many people who, who is not only surviving, they are not even struggling for surviving. They have so much money and so much stuff that they don't even need to think about surviving. They're just like, but they are not satisfied only with that. <laughs> they are not satisfied with all the things many times we think, if only I will have that, oh, then I will be happy. If you are not happy with the things you have, you will never be happy with the things you lack. Uh, that that's basically the formula. If you don't know how to be happy now with whatever you have and whatever you lack, <laughs> you will never be happy with whatever may come or go in the future because that comes and goes. Whether you become multimillionaire, whether you become homeless, whether you become both in different moments, <laughs> I mean, there's people who have gone through all the things. No? At the same time, there are certain inner treasures that nobody can take from you so so there's the real value that's how we have to figure out what's of real value artha in this life in sanskrit the word artha means gain value and also means purpose interestingly that's why many commentaries to different scriptures are called babharta dipika artha something so that which is of real value is what gives real purpose a real purpose will give value, however you like. Hmm? So you can have external, we can have external things. We can. We may have them, we may not have them. At the end, we will not have them, hmm? including this vehicle, which is already saying goodbye to us every single day. When you have birthday, you don't have one year more, you have one year less, <laughs> technically speaking. In this vehicle, it's not tragic, nothing to lament. It's just the nature of things. Um, so all the things will be taken. So what's the thing that persists? What's the thing that nothing can take away from us? What What's the real gain? What's the real purpose? What gives purpose? So in Sanskrit, artha refers to that, to gain, to purpose, and to love, ultimately. One name for love is paramartha, the supreme gain, the supreme purpose. So... So it's important that we try to, at least that's my conviction here. I'm not trying to impose myself on anyone or convince you of anything, just sharing my my reflections and hopefully hard with you. But yeah, I think it's very healthy, very healing to all, every day spend some time and ask ourselves like, okay, what, what I'm doing with my life? It's not a bad question. No. It may be a challenging one because sometimes we don't want to ask that question because we don't have a very deep answer to reply to that question. And we don't want to realize that I don't have a good answer, but we need sometimes to be confronted with those things so we can do something about it. And we can really live our life not from a survival mode, but from a celebratory mode, from a place of celebration, of purpose, of gain, of meaning internally. Because if not, like one of our text stream at Bhagavatam says, Jivana Mrito Hishaha. Jivana Pimrito Hishaha Divahuti says, or many other verses similar. 
uses the analogy of a living corpse. That's the, the, the terminology used. It's a living corpse. It's a living in the sense air is coming. No, you touch. Okay, heart is beating, but nothing is going on. <laughs> in one sense, no? the, the real life of the spirit is not emerging. The potential of the soul, which is unlimited and bright and beautiful, is covert. So it's very important that we are compassionate to ourselves <laughs> and do something about it and try to excavate. Life is an excavation project. You can see it like that. No? Let's unearth our potential. Let's unearth all that we can be. We are something, but we can be so much more. So let's try not to over-identify ourselves with our limitations and with our fears, with our doubts. I mean, we all have all that, no? just in case, feel at home, no? You are not an exception to the rule. <laughs> That's part of our human journey. Uh, so we are we all have all those things, but we should be careful not to define ourselves merely by that and think, okay, I'm that. I'm my whatever, my lack of self-confidence, my lack of self-esteem, my miserable feelings of every day. I'm I'm this, I'm that. And you yourself choose to restrict your potential. You choose to look just in this direction and expect that something happen, extraordinary will happen at any moment, <laughs> just here. And someone is touching your back saying, hey, party is there, something incredible. No, no, here something will have to happen at any moment. <laughs> the, if you want to live your life whimsically in that way and expect, I mean, what we are expecting is already happening, but possibly not in the direction you are looking at. <laughs> That's basically the point. It's not that what you need is not happening. It's happening, but we are distracted. So that's why one name of our practice means Krishna consciousness, which means to take to become conscious of Krishna, to become conscious of the divine and how the divine exists in our life, how he's trying to reach us, how he's already loving us unconditionally, to become aware of all these beautiful facts that sometimes we don't become aware if we are just insisting something cool has to be happening in this direction only <laughs> and yeah pay attention to the to the good tidings that great mystics and enlightened beings come to tell us like whatever you're looking for is already happening but not precisely in that direction so be willing to look in another direction be willing to do a paradigm shift be willing to change and uh, try to approach reality from a different angle Sounds simple, sometimes not so simple because sometimes we are addicted to our own ways of thinking, our own ways of operating and perceiving things. It's sometimes it's an addiction. Generally, it's the worst addiction. We are more addicted to our thoughts than to any other substance. <laughs> but sometimes we need to change our mind. To change. That, that's the meaning of mantra. We were singing mantra before at the beginning. Mantra means basically transcend your mind or go beyond your mind or change your mind change your mind interestingly jesus began his own ministry using basically the same word in, in his own language in, in the greek bible the word is metanoia metanoia which means change your mind although interestingly the word was translated generally as repent 
and of course a, a huge thing problem came from that but originally the word means meant change your mind that was the beginning of his gospel so to say of his discourse change your mind no? like well again one of my teachers let's see the marash as i always said probably every single class i say this <laughs> and once the devotee once asked him oh gurudev how can i serve you i would like to offer you a service can you give me service and he replies change your angle of vision that was a service he didn't say clean the bathroom peel some potatoes, go to the garden, do stuff. He said, change your angle of vision. That service. <laughs> That's the greatest service you can do to yourself and to the world. Change your angle of vision. <laughs> that may take a few years or lifetimes, probably. <laughs> That's a life work, you know, to really learn to see life from a different perspective, from the real perspective. You know, learn to con contact life as it is. Not as, as, as we think it is, as all that it can be in potential. So anyhow, I don't want to extend myself too much. Also, we want to do, to, to leave some place for questions, and also uh, we, we we may do some kirtan, some extra more some kirtan at the end. But I wanted to share some thoughts in connection to my recent book, Radical Personalism, and specifically a little bit to this idea of we. We have a commitment to our potential. Just to conclude then, we are that we are something that in potential can become so much more. We have a commitment to that. We, we, in a natural way, we should feel a commitment. I'm made of that. I'm made of potential. I cannot run away from that. I cannot hide that. I cannot cancel that. And I, I don't want because that's my brightest prospect. So I have a commitment to that. I have to honor all that I can be, basically. I cannot go, I cannot betray myself, basically. Technically speaking, if if we do not honor our potential, all that we can be, we are betraying ourselves. And there's nothing more painful than betraying yourself, I can tell you. <laughs> we don't want that. <laughs> so the best thing we can do not to betray ourselves, among other things, is to look at all that we can become in our brightest potential and start to do something today to get closer to that. No, don't try to make a quantum leap in, in 10 minutes and reach there in, in a weekend, mm -hmm. but something, it's a little step, a little step today, a little mm -hmm. step tomorrow to move in the direction of our, of, of the best version of ourselves. Sometimes it may need some planning. You may need to sit, write the list. Okay, who is the, my ideal self? What's all that I can be according to what I can see? Which things I would like to improve? You may even write them down, put some signs in your house, in your wall <laughs> to remind yourself. And what can I do today to start walking in that direction? In such a way that I can continue walking tomorrow and the day after tomorrow. Not that this is so demanding that I try and I fail and I try and I fail. I get discouraged and I cancel the whole project. That's not the idea. So we have also to have a realistic approach to our highest potential how to get closer and closer to that in a sustainable, user-friendly way. <laughs> so every single day, again, is filled with meaning and purpose. And we can feel, okay, time is not passing in vain, but time is passing as it should be. As I say in the beginning, Krishna is 
non-different from time. He says in the Bhagavad Gita. So time is passing, means Krishna is passing in me, through me, at every single day. And at this point, in at that point, our bhakti tradition is like, that's it. I don't need to be concerned about anything else. I don't need to be concerned when I leave my body, when I will go, what will happen. I mean, I'm just already doing the best that I can do in every single day. Krishna is taking charge of the rest. And I continue. No. That's why we say that for a bhakta, for a devotee, even the idea of mukti or transcending some star at this world, they don't care for that. One says, you are beyond that <laughs> if you live life from that place. You find everything right here, right now. All that you can be is already coming to you, and we are getting closer to that. And there is just reason to celebrate. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's what we, why we do Sankirtan. In one sense, this chanting is the celebration of the gifts that have come to our life. It's not so much like, Krishna, give me more, give me more. I need more, I need more. In one sense, it's, you have given me so much that let's celebrate the gift. Huh? Let's give something back in return. Not so much, more, more, more. It's never enough, give me more, no? <laughs> Krishna also will ask, but what we are, what you are doing, what, all the things that I'm sending you also. So, so, I was supposed to talk half an hour, and it's already one hour. I don't know. That's Swami Padmanava. So if you didn't know him, you're already getting to know him. He promises 30 minutes of class. Sorry, will be minimum double. But we have some minutes. If they have some questions or something you may like to comment or share regarding what we shared today, probably. Uh, I don't know if there are any questions. Yeah, Hunter Darshan. Um, thinking about, oh yeah, doing a bit of reading from within the Bhakti tradition and outside and um, the whole individuation things coming up a lot. And um, so, I mean, it, it seems to me that every single, every single soul has their own you know unique potential right yeah and i mean should or can we all figure out ourselves? or does some sometimes we just can't see it and we need somebody else to hey look you've got this potential mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay so yeah as you mentioned to begin with each soul as a unique potential because each soul is individual so we are individual beings and we are made of potential so we have an individual potential uh, that will take different forms and shapes <clears throat> and also that will depend a lot according to the environment we are associating with no? so that's also an important point because if we associate with an environment that is how to say uh, inspiring our darkest potential, your darkest potential will manifest, probably, generally, unless you are a completely enlightened being and you enter into a, a brothel and everyone becomes enlightened along with you. But generally, that's not the case. You may be carried away by the particular mood in that environment and your potential will go in 
in that direction, to give an example. And that's why we emphasize so much, and that has been probably the main, one of the main points of my first book, the one, the other one who is there, Inherent or Inherited, which is how important it is for us to get company of uh, saintly personalities, what we call sadhus, honest practitioners of spirituality for us to receive, for, for our potential to be fully actualized in connection to them. Because my point is, because that's your last question, can we figure out ourselves, so to say? <laughs> And the reply in brief, journalists, no. <laughs> I mean, we need, uh, generally we are, in brief words, confused. Most of us are confused in this life. And generally we don't find full enlightenment by our own. We generally need the proximity of people who is more enlightened than us or, or meeting some message of revelation, what we may call revelation, uh, that will tell us things that we cannot realize by our own because we are too distracted to cover whatever word you use. As I always like to say, I don't think any single person will figure out by their own way, like Krishna. If, if nobody ever read about Krishna, met a Krishna devotee, it's not that, okay, I will sit myself, I will try to figure out reality. And I came to the conclusion that there must be someone called Krishna who lives in a place called Vrindavan and the dynamic, it can, it's too much for us. I, I isolated from that environment that is revealing that to us. So, so generally that's what also, that's what Shastra is mentioning, no? that the, the jivas are, I don't want to torture all of you with too many Sanskrit terms and technical expressions, but anadi abhidya. No? The jivas are, the souls are conditioned, distracted, whatever, unaware from time without beginning. And the only way we can like actualize our potential and realize who we are is by contacting something that is outside of that conditioning that can shed light on us about who we are, what's our potential. Because if not generally, the tendency is to just become become more and more engrossed in that or, or sometimes not become more and more engrossed sometimes we suffer tremendously and that takes us to the threshold of like why i'm suffering so much but still you kind of figure out everything because of suffering terribly but it takes you to a certain disposition vulnerability openness to i need an answer i need to do because in certain stages in life we may be completely sure I, I have figured out what's life about, who am I? Not, nobody can teach me about that, so I'm just doing it. And it seems to work, it seems to work, it seems to work, boom. <laughs> Apocalypse, catastrophe. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then we are in a more humble place to realize, okay, it seems I was wrong. I was wrong. Probably I was wrong. Probably I'm wrong sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so you start to open yourself to the mere possibility that sometimes you can be wrong. <laughs> which of course is way more than that but we need sometimes to be like crushed by certain circumstances for, for our arrogance to go down and really open to I don't know certain things I don't have certain answers I'm in ignorance, I'm suffering um, and again that pain in itself is not providing all the answers but it's putting us in a situation where we are more receptive, more open and 
and we will be able to pay more attention to things that probably were already there before, but we were didn't have the the ears mm -hmm. to to hear because we were too how to say too convinced about our own prowess. <laughs> That's why Krishna says in the Gita, one of the people who approach me are those who are suffering, the afflicted ones. It's not that the affliction in itself makes everything, but they become willing for answers, for something else. So then we, we contact in one way or another spiritual people, spiritual message, spiritual practices, and, and we become aware, oh my gosh, I have this potential. Oh my God, this is who I actually am. Oh, this is who, what reality is and all the things we were talking. Oh my gosh, I was trying to live my life in an impossible way, going exactly, how do you call when a car goes this and the car and the car goes like this in the same street? You know, collision. But before the accident, one way street. One way street. But but two cars going in different direction? Okay. It's a problem. Yeah, it's a problem. <laughs> there is potential there for collision. So we realized, okay, I was just going on a collision on a daily basis because reality was going this direction and I was just going this direction faster and faster. <laughs> so I, and I went into a collision, no? an accident. So. So yeah, in brief words, I will say that that's the point. And generally, we we need them because we are not independent beings. Again, we do not exist. We are not unto ourselves. No? That's only God. In the words of Hegel, and Krishna Silasemaraj will quote him: "God is for Himself and unto Himself. He's independent. He can figure things out, so to say, by Himself. But we are not Krishna." No? Sorry. <laughs> I mean, big relief. Try to be Krishna. For, we try to be Krishna at every minute. It doesn't work. <laughs> so fortunately, we are not Krishna. So it's important that we realize our dependent situation. But being dependent is some, it's not something bad. If, if you are depending on the sweetest and most loving and merciful person, that's glorious. That's actually our greatest fortune. So, So yeah, we are dependent in terms of getting to figure out ourselves and knowing our full <coughs> our full potential because even intuitively we by our own experience independence so to say by suffering we may get to a glimpse of who we are in, in certain levels and satvic platform but that has nothing to do with the fullest potential that we can have in bhakti because in our tradition, this is very clear. You can, as an atma, as a soul, you can reach realization of the soul, realization of other levels of spiritual dimension, but the highest possible potential that the soul can attain in divine love, uh, that's something that we cannot even imagine in our wildest dreams because we have, we have never had experience of that. You can only imagine things that you have previous experience of. If you have never had experience of something, even if you try to imagine widely, it's not happening because your only point of reference is your own experience. So when we speak about our ultimate potential, that goes beyond the experience we have had so far. So we need the income, so to say, we need the intervention of that plane, which is beyond our wildest dreams, <laughs> to come to our life and 
wow, this is beyond my imagination, but at the same time, it makes perfect sense. That's how revelation works. It's like you hear that happened, I remember to me many times when I was studying Bhagavad Gita, uh, Srimad Bhattan. It's like, wow, I would have never imagined such a thing. But now that I hear it, it makes total sense. Of course, it should have been like that. But I could have never thought of that by myself. <laughs> That's a combination. Look, it makes perfect sense. It's completely intuitive. And, but I could have never concluded that independently. <laughs> so that's how it, the, the epiphany we should have in connection to a revealed message. It has to have this type of, wow, it makes perfect sense. But I never thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> or even sometimes it may not make full sense, not because it's not it's, it's nonsense, but because it's too much for us to fully grasp that immediately. But there is something intuitively in us that says, that's it, that's it, that's it. Keep listening. Like I remember once I was given a lecture in Argentina. <clears throat> I shared this a few times also. And, uh, and at the end of the lecture, it was to some yoga students in one yoga studio, Shala. And then I asked the teacher, you know the students, so how it was the lecture for them? You know them. You were looking at their faces. What's your opinion? And and she told me, it was funny. She told me, Maharaj, their faces say something like, I don't understand anything, but please don't stop. <laughs> <laughs> I say, okay, that's a good, that's a good symptom. <laughs> okay. Because if you say, please don't stop, means you're understanding something. Maybe on the typical, maybe it's on the rational conscious level, there are terms you kind of figure out, but on the deeper, more intuitive level, there's something that says, go on, go on. Go on. <laughs> so anyhow, some thoughts about the question. Thank you. I hope that makes sense. <clears throat> something else? Any other question you may have? What's your name, sir? I'm Anya. Anya, yeah. Thanks for coming. Um, I wonder what inspired you to write the book, Other Than Krishna. Well, it's different, difficult to put Krishna out of the equation. <laughs> but yeah, you, you didn't come from the very beginning of the lecture because at that moment I mentioned something about that. So basically what I mentioned in the lecture and I mentioned that in the introduction to my book to give some context to it was uh, that I went through some particular life circumstances which were like, and again, I cannot put separate Krishna from that. <laughs> He's to blame. <laughs> uh, so I, I was, yeah, I, I went through a situation, a particular situation that basically altered all my life structure and existence, uh, basically from one day to another. Uh, so that was very shocking, very unpredictable, the most painful and difficult situation of my life. Uh, but at the same time, in one sense, the most blessed. Uh, paradoxically, it's, it's strange to say that. No, it sounds like, <laughs> but it, it was very strange be, living the situation, receiving so much overwhelming, confusing, painful emotions and situation. At the same time, receiving such a shower of support and mercy and shelter and inspiration all together. So I was like, what's <laughs> I hope I survive all the things put together because I may like just explode. So yeah, it was this particular series of situations 
that somehow, yeah, threw me to a different, a very different place that I was used to be. And from that very different place, I was invited to look at things from a new perspective by 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 force of circumstance. No? Uh, and I was invited to like re, as I mentioned, recalibrate. Okay, like who I am now, who I want to be, because all the things that mostly define my identity were somehow like retired suddenly. So the like, so it's like who I am now, because I I'm still here. I exist. <laughs> I have potential. But how to re re reply to that question from this new situation? So that was very interesting, super challenging, super <laughs> unpredictable and overwhelming. But that the book came as a result of that. First, a series of lectures that came as a result of yeah, reflections and prayers and, 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 and gifts that I received internally in that period through which, yeah, I was provided with new lenses to to look at not only my own self, but my own community beyond my particular group that I was, but the whole community in itself and beyond that to other spiritual traditions and to try to see certain common patterns that will be present there and that may need to be addressed and talked about. So, so I address that in my book. In, in big part, my book is a, is a, is a critique to the current condition of my tradition in different aspects, uh, but I do that as a service to my tradition. I do that as a, as a way of increasing my loyalty to my traditions, no? not as a way of, okay, I'm leaving this place, so I became a cynic and I will criticize all of you till the end of my life, <laughs> resentful and bitter, but just, I love this tradition so much that I cannot but say all the things that I'm seeing and others are seeing as well. And but generally it's not being talked about too much. So they need to be given voice. So and I was in this part in at that moment I was in a situation where I was how to say deprived of many things. So I thought okay I, I can talk about this now because I, I have nothing to lose basically. Whatever I had to lose I already lost. <laughs> so I'm being put in a privileged situation where I can say basically whatever I want and <laughs> which is tricky and dangerous of course because you can go anywhere. But I say okay, I'm being put in this weird awkward situation. I have to take advantage of that particular place I am. What can I do from here? What service can I offer from here? So the inspiration came to share whatever I shared in the book on radical personalism. So yeah. And Krishna is part of that. Of course. <laughs> I just didn't want you give me yeah, one, yeah, yeah. one weird answer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What's your name? sorry? From what you uh, David. 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 Yeah. Just following on from what you just been saying. Um I don't know the circumstances of your um, <laughs> headspace that you've been shifted into. Oh. Um, it, 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 it appears in the kind of like the post-discon kind of world that there's been this issue, as we all know, around who is the guru and what is the guru. Your concept that you gave before of potential being uh, personified as a guru is a, a very wonderful concept to have. Mm. Um, so I guess my question is, what's your concept 
of not just not just a guru but a spiritual master because mm -hmm. a, a lot of people in, who have been in this gone have had this have grappled with this mm. okay where to begin <laughs> <laughs> actually i wrote the whole chapter of my book yes, about I, that I, I, <laughs> yeah I mean, I'm not saying this to you buy my book because I won't give any answer unless you get it. No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that the question is so important yes. that I'm it. Asking uh, you that because of it. Okay, yeah. the question is so important that it deserves not only a chapter. No, one sense that only a chapter is an insult to the to the topic. It requires so much unfolding. So, what is a guru? <coughs> Of course, the term guru in, 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 in generic sense means someone who, the very word guru means someone who dispels ignorance. So that can be applicable to to different even areas apart from spirituality. You, know? you can have a teacher of music, and you have your, your teacher, your guru in music, basically, in dance, in, in any, and that's a guru. In India, you, they will call them guru because they are dispelling ignorance in a particular given topic area of knowledge and more specifically of course we use the term guru in spiritual terms generally sometimes expression there will be sad guru or some other terms um, so spiritual master well in one sense guru and a spiritual master are terms used interchangeably uh, but i will say that guru and I totally subscribe to what the definition that I already gave. That's what I gave it. You know, a guru is our own potential appearing in front of us. And of course, it's not just my potential appearing in front of me, but someone who will help me to actualize that potential. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, a guru could be defined as a facilitator of potential. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, the guru is a servant of the disciple. Mm -hmm. A disciple is a servant of the guru. It's a, it has to be reciprocal. Mm -hmm. It's not that the guru is just a receiver of service and the master and owner of the disciple or something like that. It doesn't work like that, mm -hmm. which sometimes it thought like that. That's why I'm mentioning. Mm -hmm. So the guru is a, our own potential appearing in front of us. And as we are to have a commitment to our potential, as I say today, also the guru has a commitment not only to his or her potential, but also the guru has a commitment to the potential in the disciple and the guru commits to help the disciple to attain his or her ultimate potential so in that sense the guru is serving the disciple is nourishing the faith the guru is a servant of the faith of the disciple of the potential of the disciple you can put it like that guru is a servant of the potential of the of the disciple's potential let's let's make the one liner what's a guru a servant of the potential's disciple a guru should think of him or her like that. No? If, if you are a guru, you cannot think like, I'm here to be served by my disciples. No? They are the servants. I am the lord and master of them all or something. <laughs> the guru should be served. If the guru is bona fide, the guru will be serving the disciple probably more than what the disciple is serving the guru. Because the guru, if, if, if this if guru is advanced that he or she should be, will have more service capacity to give an offer than a disciple who is maybe still learning the art of giving himself in service. 
So in that sense, the guru is, is actually the, 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 the greatest disciple and the greatest servant and the greatest, mm. even a student. Mm. Not only the disciple is to learn from the guru, the guru is, is ideally more advanced than the disciple. I mentioned that in my book. So if you are more advanced than someone, you have more capacity to learn than the other person. So probably the guru also will be learning more from the disciple than the disciple from the guru. <laughs> Although externally the guru is giving the class and you are listening, but it doesn't mean the guru is not learning anything. Because the more advanced you are, the more capacity you have to, to learn from anyone. Not only from a super enlightened being, from anyone. So, so for me, a guru is someone like that, no? someone who is a humble servant, of the faith and the potential of the disciple, someone who is constantly learning, someone not who thinks, again, I know it all. I, I always give conclusive, absolute, definite answers. Guru can also say, I don't know. There's place for that. <laughs> There's place for humility. You know? or, or even, I don't know in the sense of they can give one hour answer to a question and after that say, I don't know. After all, how much more can be said about that? It's unlimited. If you ask me, no. Who is Krishna? Probably I can say something. Uh, I, mean, I mean, I'm putting myself as a guru, but just like someone giving a class. I can say something for some time, but at the end I should really say, I mean, compared to all that could be said about who is Krishna, what I, what I say is just almost nothing. So in that sense, I don't know. What I know is way less than what I don't know about that. So in that sense, it, a guru should keep a foundational humility and modesty. Um, but yeah, the guru, as, as the scriptures say, should be qualified in certain ways, should be qualified, as I mentioned in my book, in terms of knowing and the tradition the guru is representing, of course, because I don't know, if I'm a teacher of music and you come to my first class and you ask me, so what do you know? I said, no, I don't know nothing about music. <laughs> it's like, well... <laughs> That's this is my first and last class with you. <laughs> so you, you are expected to know what you are teaching. You have something to say, to tell, some knowledge. Knowledge is there. <laughs> but of course, in terms of spirituality, not only mere knowledge is necessary, but you have to have realization of the knowledge. In other areas, you may have knowledge of music and you are not expected to be spiritually advanced, so to say. <laughs> You may have knowledge of car, 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 carpentry, you see? Yeah. It doesn't mean you have to be an enlightened being. <laughs> it's enough with, with that, but in spiritual master, guru, in these terms, not only the knowledge is required, but also the, the, the inner insect. Shabdi, Puri, Chanishnatam. You have to know that verse. Okay, Tasman Gurum Prapadit. That has to be in the top five minimum. And I will add to that a guru who is having disciples, who is, who is guiding his students, not only should have knowledge and realization, but also should, have a, should be balanced in his or her humanity and psyche. So when that person is interacting with his students, her students, his mind, psyche, and emotion do not get in the way of the relationship. Because you can be, in some cases, you can be even spiritually advanced and socially dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. That can happen. Yeah. But if you are to be a guru who is relating to the world, interacting with the humanity of other people, that shouldn't happen because 
that will create a big problem. And that has created sometimes problems. Mm -hmm. now, if you have some unresolved human issues, childhood trauma, unaddressed, or who knows what, and in certain dynamics of guru-disciple relationship that comes to the fore, it, it, it becomes an obstacle, a problem. So that will be a, an extra layer I personally will put in terms of adhikar or eligibility that the guru should have, no? should have his, his or her humanity relatively in place. Of course, there will be always some things that we can continue polishing, but in general terms, you have to be a functional human being, so to say, <laughs> when, when, when addressing other people's humanity and shortcomings and being able to be empathic and understand their, 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 their journey, their experience, and reciprocate accordingly. If your disciples have been vulnerable, you have to know what to do with that vulnerability, because if you don't have a capacity for that, you can end up being abusive even. Mm -hmm. Even if you didn't have the intention of abusing, you don't know what to do with certain, with some peop other people's vulnerability, trust, open heart. You can end up traumatizing them. So, so that's also something important that comes to my mind if I have to say, who is a guru? <laughs> and one last thing, uh, and again, this is just a summary of a whole chapter written there. I will say that the guru also is is a friend. No, that's another important point. No? Both important for the disciple and for the guru. No? The disciple has to know my relationship with my guru has to progress to one of friendship. Not friendship like, hey, how are you doing? But like you have a, every, technically speaking, and that came recently, uh, every relationship converges ideally into a type of friendship. Your relationship with your husband should be gradually become some type of friendship. Your relationship with your children eventually should become a type of friendship. Your relationship with your parents should become one of friendship. Your relationship with your brothers and sisters should become a type of friendship, different types of friendship, of course. Still, they are the father, your wife, your kids, but there's some friendship. What to speak of the relationship with your friends. And the relationship with the guru should be evolved into one of friendship there is affection there is respect still there is the hierarchy guru disciple so to say but there is a type of confidence and trust and intimacy that has to develop in the relationship in time rupa goswami says that bishrambena guru seva one has to relate to the guru with bishramba which means intimacy trust confidence which is a form of friendship so the disciples should know that to know that they okay the relationship should grow in that direction and the guru also should know that to not over like position himself herself like at the top of a pyramid which becomes completely like you know, unavailable in one sense and and there there is no rapport and no intimacy and no feedback so so i like to conceive more the the relationship guru disciple not so much as a pyramid but more as a circle or as a spiral a circle that always expands more. It's a mutual collaboration. Of course, for the disciple, the guru is always a bow, but at the same time, it's a teamwork because both guru and disciple are both disciples, both students, both servants, and both are serving a common ideal. Both are serving Krishna, both are serving divine love. So it's a teamwork. The two are working together for a common cause. It's not so much 
I'm here, you are there, and the interests are different. No, the, we are the two of us together in this. It's a contract, it's a marriage, guru disciple. No? We need each other. I mean, guru needs a disciple to be guru. Disciple needs a guru to be disciple, to, to perform the function, so to say. So each of us need both each other, and and yeah, it's a beautiful relationship. It should be, <laughs> ideally, yeah. So that's what comes to mind now. I don't know if that helps at all. Yeah. Thank you for the question. So something else before concluding. We already are like almost one hour and a half, but there is anything else to. Close the curtain. If not, we may do a little bit more of curtain. <coughs> okay, you want curtain, it says. <laughs> yes, please. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. Sri Sri Gaurahari ki jai, Sri Harinam Prabhu ki jai, Gaur Bhaktavinda ki jai, Gaur Praman Hari. So thank you so much again to all of you for your time, your presence, and. Uh, probably there's a cup on the, the, the water there, yeah. So, I'll stream the curtain, but people is tired of seeing my face, so I will put the camera this, and you have beautiful torsion, if it's okay. <laughs> I will sing a little bit. <clears throat> about tapa fire collective introspection entering together into this teamwork and so on and so forth so we need each other that's the basic idea of sankirtan we cannot do sankirtan on our own it's a collective endeavor so, but the very definition sankirtan is you cannot do it by yourself again you need we need each other